All right. Okay, we're good to go. Luke chapter 5, verse 33 is where we're going to start this morning. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of new garment in an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the pieces that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires the new. For he says... The old is better. All right. Father, we just ask you to to guide us through your word this morning as we venture on in the book of Luke. And we thank you for the the teaching here. We thank you for, for sharing that with us. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to that this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here as we start, we have... um, Kind of the typical thing. If you remember, as we finished up the last chapter, we had, well, not the last chapter, this chapter, but the beginning of the chapter, we had Levi was called, and he was a tax collector, if you remember. And tax collectors are like the IRS for us, you know? And maybe we feel quite the same about them, um, now that I think about it. But he was, tax collectors weren't liked. They were... Well, probably rightfully so, but they, they took stuff that they weren't entitled to and all that stuff, and, and a little bit that was all right for them. They, they were allowed, according to the government, to do that and supplement their income, um, but it wasn't the right thing to do. And so we have that here, and here we have now, of course, <coughs> the Pharisees always looking for something to, to complain about and to pick about and to try to trip Jesus up on. They come up with the question, So why is it that John's disciples fast and our disciples fast and yours don't fast? They eat and drink, you know, just like every day. And so he answers them here with a direct answer, right? Can you make the the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them? I I still marvel. I, I would... I should just study it harder, I guess, but it, I marvel at how Jesus answers questions. You know, sometimes he's direct. Or if you're willing, you can make me clean. I'm willing. Be cleansed. You know, but he has these ones when they're trying to trip him up and he comes up with these. Can you make the bride, the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them? <clears throat> and that's got to be like, wait a minute, how did we get to a bridegroom here? We're just asking about fasting and stuff. Um, <clears throat> but we see him here, and, and it amazes me, and I don't know till I was studying it for this time that, I, that it became so clear, I guess, to me, I would say. Jesus is, in, is ushering in a new thing here. If you remember, if we looked back in Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm going to bring a new covenant for them. 
everything. And, and we see him ushering, especially in this place. And that's one of the things I've begun to really appreciate about Luke. He groups things a little bit together more by teaching and subject than, than some of the other gospels where it's account, account, account. Um, <clears throat> so we see him here. But who, who is Jesus the bridegroom of? The church, right? And so we see him. He doesn't say it that way. But, you know, the, the friends of the bridegroom, they don't, they don't fast and stuff while the bridegroom's with them. And we know that they didn't hear him. And Jesus says, but pretty soon the, the bridegroom won't be with them. Then they're going to fast, okay? Um, and so we see that, that here. But then he speaks a parable to them. And it's interesting. Um, Luke's the one, only one that calls it a parable. The other ones have it. Um, at least Matthew... Matthew and Mark have it. John doesn't have it. <clears throat> but they put it here, and he speaks this parable. And the, the sewing people in the group, um, or the winemakers, they understand this one pretty well, right? You can't put a new piece of garment, a new piece of cloth, onto an old garment, right? I remember when Edie sewed and stuff, you know, there was lots of times she'd pre-shrink the material, you know? And if you want to patch your jeans... You don't go out and buy new denim to patch your jeans. You sacrifice one of the old pairs of jeans and you cut it up because if you put a new piece of denim, denim especially, especially nice cotton denim, you know, it's, it's going to shrink and it'll just tear your jean, old jeans back open again. Okay, so you got to put old cloth on the old cloth, new cloth on the new cloth, okay? Otherwise, you're going to have a problem. The other thing that happens, and jeans is probably a good example of that, is they don't match. You know, if you put a new blue jean on an old blue jean, it's like you might as well, I mean, it's obviously patched. You know, it's dark blue and light blue and, and stuff like that. So, you know, they don't match. They don't go together. Old, the old and the new don't go together. Same with wine. Now, I'm not a winemaker, but... He gives a pretty good example here, and I can follow it. He said, you know, if you have, if you're making wine, you don't put new wine into an old wine skin, because I know this part of it. It ferments, and when it ferments, it builds up gases and everything. And if you put it in an old one, it's going to try to stretch that old wine skin out even further. And like he says here, it'll burst, and the wine will all spill out, and you'll lose everything. And you can't put. Old wine, well, you could, I guess, put old wine into the new one, but it doesn't work real good either. Um, and so you don't do that. You got to put the new wine into new wine skins so they're both preserved. And <clears throat> we were looking, in fact, we should back up just for a moment. Let's go to, not back up exactly, but I looked at this this morning. Where did it go? Okay, never mind. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 8 because this will save us going back to Jeremiah 2. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8. It's important we do this part, and I almost kind of flew by it because of my mind. I have that trouble. I don't know if, the, if Mark and Casey have the problem. I have, my mind puts things together. I've always done this. So I can skip important steps because my mind just sticks it in there. 
I just keep on going. I, I know what I mean, you know? And Edie, once in a while after I speak, she'll say, I really at first didn't get where, how you got to wherever it was I got to. And then it finally dawned on me later what it was, but I got to remember to put those things in at the beginning so you can follow where I'm going. So here we are, we're talking about the new wine, the new cloth, we're, we can't mix it with the old. Um, <clears throat> and uh, here we're gonna see this, uh, and the quote here um, in Hebrews 8, is from Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah 31 to 34. Um, and it says here, <clears throat> Behold, I'll skip the first part. Of it. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and they disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the new this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says, he, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so we see that here in a parable. I think it applies so well. Um, he's instituting a new covenant. And the, and the problem that the Pharisees have there is they still want to use the old one. Okay, they're trying to put new wine into the old wineskins. They're trying to put new cloth onto an old garment, and it doesn't work here as we see it. Um, and so he goes through. <clears throat> and, and it's really neat the way, I think, that he points it out to them. And, and so as we go to it, and we see, we see this so prevalently even now, I think, um, Thinking about that last phrase of verse 33, or, or the last verse, no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old's better. Okay? And I think a little bit that's meant sarcastically, but a little bit it's true. Well, like, you know, how many people like to try new things? You know, how many people, like, they like, their, they're comfortable in the old. And we see that here as, as we go into this section. The law is obsolete, as we see in Hebrews. It's obsolete. It's vanishing away. It shouldn't, not that it shouldn't be used. It's there for our learning. But that's not the covenant anymore. The new covenant is what Jesus brings and institutes. Okay? There's salvation. There's mercy. There's grace. There's all of those things. And the Pharisees... I don't think this, this will surprise anybody. You'll all say, oh, yeah. You know, the Pharisees, they're ones for keeping the law. When they come to Jesus, they're always, well, why do your disciples, like they're doing here, why do your disciples do this? They shouldn't do that. Why are they eating, why are they eating grain on the Sabbath? That's work, you know, rubbing those things to get the hull off so you can eat it. That's work. 
you know, all these things. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why are you uh, associating with sinners? You know, the law says to keep separate, be separate from them, keep, keep clean, all that stuff, you know, uh, on and on and on. And <clears throat> Jesus says no one who's used to the old stuff likes the new stuff, essentially, you know, but wake up. You know, he, he doesn't go into it. He goes into another um, story. In fact, that's, that's the other mark, right? You're going to do the rubbing the grain thing. Um, so we'll just keep building on this. That's one of the things, like I was saying, that I like about Luke. He, built, he bunches things together a little bit better or a little bit differently so you see flows in thought um, as we go. And so <clears throat> as we, we have here, it's not a big, hard parable to understand you know, he doesn't have to necessarily give us the interpretation. We can look at it um, and see it here. But don't mix the new and the old. And people now want to do that, right? <clears throat> well, what good is it? Why well, do we have the law if we don't have to follow the dietary laws? And and things like that. Why do we do this? Why shouldn't we, you know? And and they still want to, I guess, is it, that it comes down to. <clears throat> I was watching a movie or something yesterday. And they even refer to it, you know. <clears throat> the guy was saying, well, I'm, he, he had been a sniper. I give the show away, but that's okay. He was a sniper. And what, one of his goals was to put away as many murderers as people that he had killed as a sniper. You know? And, and the, the response was, I don't know that there's a cosmic balance list, you know, to, to do that. And, and God doesn't do that. He doesn't, you know, but we want to do that, right? Oh, look, my, I was as good as I was bad, so at least I'm even, you know? Or some will be so ambitious as to have more good than bad so that, you know, God's got to let me in because I've been more better than bad, you know? We, we do it with everything, right? We have Santa has the good and naughty list, you know? You want to be on the good list, you know? All of those things, but it's all works-oriented. It's all keeping the law and, and those kind of things. And Jesus says there's is something new now. You know, we don't need the good and naughty list because Jesus is gracious and has mercy and forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And uh, so that's where we are today. And now we'll turn it over to the other mark to continue on. Thank you, Mark. You can stay right where you're at because we are just going to move right ahead into the beginning of chapter six. Um, And just as a quick additional announcement, I'm sure you all saw these. I don't know if you all grabbed one. Uh, Casey has them. You don't have to use them, but I think we mentioned them maybe a few weeks, if not a month or so ago about we're going to try to get them. Uh, They're ESV translation. So if that's not your translation, that may be a reason. Or if you have your notes somewhere else, and you've got a flow going in a notebook and you don't want to transpose them, that's fine too. But basically it's just the book of Luke in the ESV with uh, the scripture and then a page for notes. So I think it's pretty cool. Keep everything. I, I had this thought of like one of my bookshelves with like, you know, the gospels and like other books of the Bible and they're all next to each other and all the notes are in there. Um, maybe a pipe dream, but either way. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a really cool thing. So if you, if you want to take advantage of that, feel free. Um, 
So I'm going to read through. So Luke chapter six, verses one through five. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So just a very, very short passage here, but nevertheless, uh, a few interesting things to kind of pluck from it. Um, No pun intended. So it's, it's obvious that lots of people, including the Pharisees, and in this case, we may say only the Pharisees, but that's the important element here. They're following them everywhere. They're like following them all over the place, watching absolutely everything they do. Because here they are just walking through, passing by some grain fields, and they grab some things. And as Mark already kind of showed, you got to rub the, the, the dried heads of wheat in your hands, and you get all that nasty outer shell chaff off, and you can eat the grain. Um, and they're like, oh, you see that? Oh, yeah, let's go talk to them. And they catch up to them, and they, they try to get them. And they couldn't find fault with the fact that they were in somebody else's field and they were taking the grain because Deuteronomy 23 uh, verses 24 and 25 says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So basically, you can have a little bit, you know, there's so much grain probably that if you're hungry and you really need to eat, you can have a little bit, but you can't start farming your neighbor's grain, but you can only eat so much. So there's no impact there. And that was a rule back in Deuteronomy. So the Pharisees wouldn't take issue with that, but they tried to reach to the Sabbath. And Exodus 28 to 11 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Um, I wanted to just, as a quick aside, I think it's really cool that we obviously have Sunday, but we work on Sunday too. Like sometimes there's things that we have to do and we work and like the Pharisees would say, oh, even this action is work. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, We do things around the house and we work, but I think it's really neat because I've talked about, you know, the, the bells on the tassels of the robes and even fasting, which we just talked about, a physical reminder uh, that, that forces our minds onto the things of Christ having your entire week structured around God in that, why I'm not to do any work today. Well, why? Why wouldn't you work today? It's a beautiful day and you could get a bunch of work done. Well, it's holy to the Lord. And I'm doing it because of it's patterned after the way that God created um, everything. And in doing that, you're now reaching right back to God. So like a physical structuring of your week that points to God, that thing that points you back to God. It's just a, a neat reminder for us to just have those things in our lives, whatever they are. They, they don't have to be like, oh, I have bells all over my clothes and then you guys hate me because I'm always jangling around when you guys are trying to be quiet or do something. And it's like, oh, they, they remind me of the Lord. 
Um, obviously not practical, but reasons and things that we can do that are practical, little verses around the house, uh, a, a time that's carved out like we do Sunday morning to come here, but even more so than that at home, a time that's carved out to, to be with the Lord. Those types of things are, are, are awesome. Um, but the Lord, the, the Lord used a story from the Old Testament to showcase to the Pharisees that setting setting aside the Sabbath day as a holy day unto the Lord was never intended to forbid a work of necessity. That's the way that McDonald put it, and I couldn't have said it any better, so I just borrowed that and giving him credit for saying it that way. But the story that Jesus referenced with David, it's not David's best light either because he lies in that story. If you look at 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, we see it says, Then David came to Nob and to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know of anything that, of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you, which is not true. And let me see, I lost my place when I said it's not true, because it wasn't, but I did lose my place, that was true. Uh, let no one know anything of the matter of which I send you and which I have charged you. I made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young man have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will, the, will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So again, the, the king didn't send him on a, a journey. He was fleeing from, from Saul at the time. Um, but it's all kind of wrapped up in this in this lie. We, we don't lift David up on a pedestal or anything like that. And that's not the focus of this. The Lord is saying that this was an this was an act of necessity. They needed to eat. And so even on the Sabbath or even with respect to these holy things, there are things that need to be done. That's not what that's for. Um, it's basically saying that you are doing this, though, as a as a rule, not an exception to to remember the Lord and to make that time set apart to be holy for the Lord. If you're about to die of hunger and your option is to do a little bit of work to get some food or to like rub some grain together and eat it, not that that was the case here, but I'm making a, an exaggerative point, then that's okay, even on the Sabbath, because that's the Sabbath was not set up for that. It was not Busy yourself with work and go and do like I, I would go to Visions Federal Credit Union and work on Sunday morning instead of coming here would be the closest thing that I could think of because that is the time that we've set apart as holy to the Lord. But for them, the whole day was holy to the Lord for them to spend remembering what he did and thinking about him. And so they were not to say, well, I'll, I'll spend today gathering and harvesting my fields because then they would be thinking about that and the work of their hands and the things that they're getting, the physical things and not the things of the Lord. And so the Lord was showing them that like, kind of like Mark was alluding to, they're so stuck on what they think they know because they think they're the masters of scripture and the Old Testament and they know everything there is to know, but they're, they couldn't be more wrong in some of these circumstances and they're focused on that old. Um, and Matthew 12, five through eight, I'll end with this, gives us a little bit more insight. The same account, just in Matthew, 
Uh, Matthew 12, 5 through 8, gives us a little bit more insight into what was said by the Lord. Um, a contrast, I guess, kind of uh, from the usual detail that we see in Luke's accounts. But it says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. And then it kind of links back up for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So a sobering reminder for us, both to keep that time set apart, we don't do the whole day as was done in the Old Testament, but keeping some time set apart and holy for the Lord, but not as the Pharisees here are being, and like Mark just kind of touched on as well, to be so overly legalistic that we erroneously apply scripture to individuals or circumstance because we're reaching back into the Old Testament um, and trying to find fault with others. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And again, he's saying that in this case, the disciples here are guiltless because the point of the Sabbath here was not to, it was not to, um, again, as McDonald put it, uh, forbid a work of necessity. But it was a general rule that you are not to work because you are to think about the Lord on this day. So, again, just some neat thoughts, and I'll turn it over to our brother Casey. And I think you have a word after Casey's. All right. So, just going to continue in Luke chapter 6. We'll start by reading it. I guess as I turn there, I'll say I do think it's cool how Luke builds this up, kind of comes to a head in this section that I'm, I'm going to do, which is Luke 6, verses 6 through uh, 11. <clears throat> On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at, it, at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, kind of continuing with the idea of the Sabbath, that's, that's kind of the thrust of, of this section is that it's on a Sabbath. That's how, same thing as the last section, the Pharisees are trying to catch him by him doing something they'd say is work on a Sabbath. Um, but I do want to start it out by saying, you know, that Jesus went to the synagogue on a Sabbath. Makes sense. Um, he obeyed the Sabbath. And I, I want to point that out to, in contrast with how so many people view church today because instead of saying he went to the synagogue, I'm going to say he even went to the synagogue to worship there when he knew the people there wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. Um, they were out to get him. And so this kind of hits, hits home a little bit in that we have very little excuse to miss worshiping on Sunday at church. Um, the elders here aren't going to try to kill you. That's not their purpose. So, so that, that excuse is out. And that wasn't an excuse anyway because Jesus went. Um, but then, you know, even maybe a little bit more applicable is Jesus obviously had some differences with the, the leaders of the synagogue. Um, 
He would have disagreed with them. He would have thought they were wrong on some things. Uh, yet, that does not stop him from going. Uh, so just, just a little bit there on, on uh, Jesus obeying the Sabbath and how I, I know our culture is a lot different than first century Jewish culture. culture but just, I think today we have, uh, in general, there's like a casual attendance and a lack of respect for, for, uh, by Christians for, for the church today. Um, and I think that's a tragedy. And I think here we see an example of how it's biblical for us to stay very committed to honoring God by meeting with, with other Christians on a weekly basis to worship, regardless of circumstances. <clears throat> so then we continue in that verse. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. Now, some people suggest that he was planted there by the Pharisees, uh, but I will point out, and that could be, but I will but I will point out that it never says that. You know, so that's, that's just trying to pull that out. And maybe it was, but the, the way I read it, I'm going to point out a different scenario that, that kind of made me think more highly of this man. In the, in the difference in his healing compared to a lot of the healings, maybe, I mean, most of them for sure. I don't know if there's been any other ones like this yet, where this man never asked for healing. Um, and as we, you know, as you look back, you see that almost everybody comes to Jesus like, heal me, heal me. And we even see other sections where, where Jesus heals them, but it's evident that it's a physical he healing. It's not you know, spiritually not sure how much, how much really changed with them. Um, but here we have this man who is, who went to the synagogue to keep the Sabbath, uh, to worship the Lord. And so perhaps, I mean, this is reading into it. I don't, don't want to go too far into that. But perhaps his priorities were, were pretty straight. It may be that he desired God and his righteousness, and he didn't even ask Jesus for healing. So we get to verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Kind of like Mark was saying, the Pharisees at this point, are they're following Jesus, they're watching him, they're just looking for any reason that they can, they can catch him in something. Uh, and so as, as you really think about this, this is remarkable. Uh, they have, they have a, a type of belief in Jesus. Two things. They believe beyond doubt, you know, and I've seen it a bunch of times, that he heals people. You know, so they're sitting there, there's a man with a withered hand, he's going to heal him, I know it. You know, and they're like thinking of this in a bad way. And it's like, think about that. How, you know, the Son of God comes down with the power to miraculously heal people. And, you know, this is the first time ever, and they don't see it as like, huh, we should think about this. This guy might be from God. It's a, we're going to catch him when he heals this guy on the Sabbath. Um, so they have the, you know, they know he does miracles. Like, that's not in question to them. They're going to catch him in one of those miracles. Um, and then the other thing that I think is pretty cool is they also believe that he won't be able to stop himself from healing this person, even when he knows they're trying to catch him. Uh, they understood that his character is loving and compassionate towards people, especially towards afflicted people. I just thought that was cool about like, even they understood how his character was. That There's this man here that's, that's afflicted and hurting. He's not going to be able to help himself. He's going to heal him and we're going to catch him in that. Um, and so, yeah, despite this belief that Jesus is loving and compassionate in a way, I mean, I don't know if they would quite put those words in their heads, but, and that, that he heals people, you know, miraculously, uh, they just want to catch him. 
speaking of which, the, the law is particularly devoid of making stipulations about miraculous healings. So, like, uh, like with the grain thing, well, I guess they were, they were still getting a little bit from Scripture there. They're having, they're having to completely make up their own new laws on this. You know, be like, healing, it's illegal. You know, like, oh, really? When has that come up before? Um, so the new law that they make up is no miraculous healings from God on the day set apart to honor God. I mean, you think about that. Like, when you really break it down, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, and I, this breakdown in logic here leads to the point that if you strive against God, you will find yourself standing on losing and illogical ground. And when it really gets broken down, you're standing before God and you're like trying to be like, make your point, you're going to end up, he's going to be like, so basically what you're saying is, you know, something like this where it makes no sense at all. And you're like, I was wrong. So then verse eight, but he knew their thoughts. And I, I really like the part I think Mark made last week, just about how Jesus keeps, like they have these thoughts and Jesus keeps just, he knows their thoughts. He comes up, comes up and, and, uh, and answers them right away. He keeps reading their minds. And you'd think at some point, you know, these guys would, get, would, would catch a hint here. That between, you know, knowing their thoughts and working their miracles and working his miracles, it's like, all right, something, there's something about this guy. You know, I think a thought and he knows it. Like, you know, he's a little bit more than a man, I think. Um, but, so I did want to reference John chapter 3. This part always amazes me, but it goes right in line with this. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 2, this is Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There's a teacher of the law here, you know, right in there. And he says, we know that you are from God. Like, we know it. We're just angry about it, I guess. You know, and we're not going to admit it publicly, but we know. I mean, it's obvious. You do the healings. Uh, you know our thoughts. And I think this can kind of get at us a little bit because... How often do we know deep down what is right? Like, if we're doing something wrong, like, we know. We might not want to admit it to ourselves. You know, we try to hide it. We, we do our best to ignore it or just decide we don't want it, you know. But when it really comes down to it, I, we know. I mean, especially if you're in the Word. Um, and a lot of people even that aren't in the Word, you know, a lot of non-Christians, deep down, they know, they know what they're doing is wrong. And so I think... Just with that in mind, it's, it's, it's easy to pick on the Pharisees, but it's also, when we really look at it, it's easy to be like the Pharisees too. So verse 8, we have, let's see, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and stood there. So just another little positive for the man with the withered hand. Just no questions, just obedience. Verse 9, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And so basically, similar to what Mark was saying, is the purpose of the Sabbath is to honor God. And Jesus gets right to the core of the matter. Um, it is honoring to God to do good. And it is dishonoring to God to do evil. And so basically, the Sabbath, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not... Formalism, you know, just like we go to church because it's Sunday and we're supposed to. That's not it either. It's a heart to honor God. Now, as we keep going in that section, 
I, I love verse 10. And after looking around at them all, he said, er, no, I'm going to stop there. After looking around at them all, you know, picture them. They're all standing there, and Jesus just, like, asks his question. Nobody gives an answer, but he takes his time and looks right at them. And apparently, Jesus' words convicted the Pharisees enough, or at least won the crowd enough, that no more mention of accusing Jesus was made that day, despite him going ahead and healing on the Sabbath. Um, and so, yeah, I just picture, you know, if you were there watching, just picturing Christ's eyes just, like, piercing through each of them. I mean, how long, how long would people be able to hold it before a head goes down? You know, I, I can't meet that gaze. Um, and really, I mean, if you think about it as far as how sin works, we're in the same boat. You know, Jesus uh, points out our sin. It's like, <laughs> no one can look God in the face. He knows. He, he looks right into our heart, and there's no answer back. Um, but, I mean, then we get to the work of the cross, and Jesus is, his, his sacrifice on the cross is what allows us to look at God with no shame and with no guilt. Not because of anything we did, but because he sacrificed uh, for us. So that now we can look at God with, with the idea that everything's been paid for. I was not, you know, I, I never earned it. I wasn't good enough. I couldn't earn it. But Christ did for me. <clears throat> Verse 10. Um, so then he says, stretch out your hand. And I thought this was kind of cool. Because this is one of those miracles where, you know, I guess I'll finish. And he did so. And his hand was restored. So man's got a withered hand there, and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. I mean, like, he easily could have said, I can't, look at it. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the problem, it doesn't stretch out. Um, and so you think, this is impossible. Um, and I think this is a really great picture of God telling a person to do something that seems impossible, yet as the man obeys the Lord, the miracle happens, and suddenly, it's possible. And so I think this is a great picture of, of uh, like for us to try to remember to trust and obey even when it seems impossible. With God's power, our withered hand can become whole even as we attempt to do something that wouldn't work without God. Um, and as we think about it, this is true in almost every spiritual thing we do. Our efforts and our hearts are naturally spiritually withered, you know, just, just broken and poor. And it takes obedience to God and faith on our part and action. Um, and God makes us whole through his son as we, as we obey. So verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so we just see this pattern with the Pharisees that Jesus gets the best of them. You know, he I, like I said, I don't know exactly where they were at, but they knew they couldn't. They knew he got him on that one. They 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 felt probably somewhat convicted, like yeah, you know, but they weren't happy about it. They knew the crowd, you know, he'd won over the crowd. They couldn't do anything about it this time, and that really to to do to do anything would just prove his point even more. Um, but instead of repenting, they just kind of gather all together and they're like, we got to find a way to get this guy. Like, I don't know how it's going to be. You know, every time we try to do something, he just, he hits us hard and he gets us and, and it's terrible and he shames us and we're angry. Um, but we got to get him. Um, and so I guess wanted to just kind of end with the thought that a big lesson here is to not be like them. Um, especially like in this section, when we are convicted or proven wrong, 
The right thing to do is to repent and to run to Jesus. Rather than to harden ourselves into selfish pride, um, rather than to think about like, oh, like, you know, like either, either I can do it or how dare they do that or like it's not wrong or however, whatever thoughts go through your mind for any excuse that you can do it or any excuse to like keep on sinning and not change your ways, whatever it is, that's, that's what the Pharisees did. And it's, like I said, it's easy to pick on the Pharisees, but it's also really easy to be like the Pharisees. And so when we, when we get proven wrong, when we get convicted, repent and run to Jesus. Realize that he's right and we're wrong. And basically, that's always true. So keep that attitude. They tell me that's like marriage too. <laughs> um, and so just with the thought that we should be broken and humble people that just cling to the Lord. So I guess I'll hand things over to Mr. Yeah.